Good morning. It's good to see you all. How's everybody doing this morning? Man, it is so good to be with you. Can I just tell you I love you? Like, I love being here. And, you know, even if you're a guest and you're a visitor and I don't know your name, I love you too, right? So I'm just glad to, to come alongside and worship with you today. I, I will tell you that uh, around Wednesday, Wednesday evening coming home from prayer meeting, uh, I was destroyed. I was feeling like death. That's a bit of an overstatement, but you get my drift, right? I was not feeling well at all. I'm on the upside. I'm feeling better after Thursday and Friday and feeling the best I felt in several days. Not so much for my family, okay? Uh, so I'm flying solo today. My, my wife is at home. She's feeling sick. Some of the kids are struggling with some stuff. And so we would covet your prayers for their healing and for their recovery. I know that it's not just limited to my family. I know uh, several of us on staff are also fighting it. April Lentz is at home. Pray, for, pray for, for the staff, but really just pray for everyone. It's that time of year we're getting ramped up to go back to school, start a new year, and just let's enjoy this last week of summer and combat these illnesses that are floating around, right? I, I don't know what you do when you're not feeling well. I don't know how you uh, like to comfort yourself during times of sickness, uh, but beyond going to the doctor's office, beyond just getting those remedies, one of the things that I love to do is watch movies, all right? Can I get an amen? Right? I mean, it's just, there's just something comfortable about laying on the couch and feeling awful and watching a movie. And so uh, this past weekend, a couple nights ago, uh, the children were in bed, and uh, Jennifer and I and, and her parents were in town. We decided to watch the movie Instant Family. How many of y'all seen the movie Instant Family, just out of curiosity? Great movie, okay? I, I highly recommend it. I will offer that recommendation with a caveat that the language is pretty rough at points, and so know that going in. But it's a, it's a wonderful movie that captures all the emotional highs and lows of foster care and adoption, and, and a lot of good comedic relief along the way. And so it's, it's a really powerful movie. It's thought-provoking because of the, the topic and the subject matter, uh, but it's a really, really good movie. And uh, there, I, I bring it up to you this morning because the opening scene I think is a great start for us today. The opening scene starts with you seeing this house from the street, and it's this two-story house, and it clearly looks abandoned, right? It looks worn down, looks broken a lot of areas, and so the, the, the cameras then quickly take you inside where you see Mark Wahlberg, and I think it's Rose Byrne, I think is, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but they're the two main actors and actresses in this, in this movie. And, and they're walking through, and the, the camera kind of focuses in on Mark Wahlberg's face, and he's looking around, and he's kind of got this inquisitive look, and you see that the inside is actually worse than the outside. Uh, it's exactly what you would anticipate. It's abandoned. It's broken down. The camera kind of pans the area. There's, there's no furniture. What furniture's left is ripped up, destroyed. There's debris, broken glass. And so he's taking it all in, and he turns to his wife, and he, and he looks at her, and he's like, this is what you wanted me to see. And, and she kind of nods in this nervous agreement, and then all of a sudden a smile comes across his face, and he goes, it's perfect. And it's when he says that, that as a viewer, you kind of get this shift. You're like, oh, they, they weren't discouraged by this house. They were actually encouraged by this house. And, and all of a sudden, this opening scene leads to this contrast, where now Rose Byrne, her, her sister, she comes in with her husband, and they have the complete opposite reaction. Right? They see everything broken. They see the wear and tear. They see the dust and all these things, and they're, they're repulsed by it. They're just like, what? this is terrible. Who would ever want to live here? This is, there's too much work to be done. And interestingly enough, this house serves as a very powerful metaphor for the whole movie right? and the journey that these families are about to go on in particular. Uh, but what it does in particular, the reason I, I bring it, is because you have this juxtaposition of these two couples. Right? And it kind of brings to mind this central question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning for this message, which is, what do you see? 
Right? For these two couples in this situation, you have one that, that only sees the current reality. They only see the challenges. They only see the struggles, the, the hardship, the difficulty, the work that it would take. And so they, they don't want any part of it. They want to move on. The other couple, though, what do they see? They see potential. They see future. They see promise. They see optimism. In fact, at one point, Rose Burns turns to her sister and she goes, no, just envision what it could be and begins to lay out this dream. And, and the reason I use that as an opening illustration and the reason that question is so applicable for us today is because I want us to talk about vision. Right here in the next couple of weeks, we're going to start a new sermon series next week about some practical things that we're going to be pursuing together as a church family. And all of that is designed to say, well, God's leading us somewhere. Right? There's something he wants to accomplish. But, but the question today is what mindset is required of us when we pursue God's call for our lives, both as individuals as well as a community of faith? What mindset do we have to have? And what we'll often see is that a lot of times we fall in one of these two camps. Sometimes when God calls us to certain things, all we see is the current difficulty, right? The current obstacles, the, the, the way the world is right now, the way my life is right now, and it's defeating, it's discouraging. But other times, we can look beyond it, and we can see promise, we can see hope, we can see optimism, and that's the mindset that we want to have. And so today's story is really not going to take us into the details of the vision that, that we have necessarily to pursue as much as the mindset and the posture that we need to take to pursue God's call on our lives as individuals as a church intentionally and meaningfully. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. This is a great story. It's, I don't know how familiar you will be with this story. If you were like me, it's like I went back and I read it and I was like, oh yeah, I kind of remember hearing this one, but I didn't remember all the details, okay? So let's, let's read this story together and be reminded of this, this great passage in 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to be picking up in verse 8. It says, Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel, and after conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware. Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God, and time and again Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. Well, the report came back. He's in Dothan. And then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And as the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. And Elisha told him, this is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. Now after they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. And when the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elijah, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those who 
you have captured with your own sword or bow, set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. And so the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. All right, I love this story. I'm going I'm to warn you, it gets me excited. Okay, so I get a little riled up today a little bit. So here, let me just go ahead and, and briefly summarize it for you again, because you, you kind of need to, to follow along. And if you haven't heard it in a while, it's easy to kind of forget or maybe not follow exactly what's happened. So, so essentially, there's a war, right? The king of Aram is after the king of Israel, and they're at war. And so he's constantly trying to set up all these ambushes for the king of Israel. And so he'll go out to all these different places, and he lays in wait there. But then Elisha tells the king of Israel, he says, okay, watch out. When you crawl and travel through these areas, be careful. And so constantly the king of Israel is able to avoid these ambushes. And so it frustrates the king of Aram. He's like, who's doing this? And so he calls his, his men together and he suspects a traitor. He suspects he's being betrayed and he calls them and goes, all right, who's the mole? Which one of you is leaking information? Who is it? And they deny it. They're like, it's not us. It's Elisha. In fact, he, he tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. He knows more than we know. Right? And so now the king of Aram says, okay, well, if he's the one responsible, then we're going to go seek him out. We're going to capture him. So the report comes back that Elisha's staying in Dothan. And so uh, the king of Aram, he doesn't just send a few. Right? He doesn't just send a couple people and say, all right, you two guys, you go take care of him. He sends horses, chariots, a strong force to go capture Elisha. And so they move by night and they surround the city. So early the next morning, Elisha's there with his servant. The servant comes up and he looks out and he sees that the city's surrounded. So in, in, in desperation... In panic and concern, he comes back and he's like, Lord, what are we going to do? We are surrounded. And Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And he prays. He says, Lord, open his eyes that he could see. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden the servant looks out on the hills and he sees horses and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. And so now with, with this on display... All of a sudden, the enemy begins to move forward. And so Elijah prays specifically, Lord, blind them. Strike this army with blindness. And then he steps out and he goes, hey, you're on the wrong road. You're heading the wrong way. Uh, I'll take you to the man you're looking for. And he leads him to Samaria. And so he leads this strong force of the Arameans into Samaria. And then all of a sudden he says, all right, Lord, open their eyes that they can see where they are. And all of a sudden, this army becomes aware of the fact that they're the ones surrounded. They're now the ones vulnerable. And so the king of Israel, almost like giddy with this opportunity, is like, what should we do? Should we kill him? Should we kill him? Should we kill him? And Elisha's like, no, you don't kill him. In fact, feed them. Give them something to drink. And so the king of Israel throws a feast for his enemies. And all of a sudden, he sends them off, and they go back, and they say, no longer are we going to raid the lands of Israel. It is a phenomenal story. I love it. And there are several lessons that I feel we can extrapolate from this story to help foster the appropriate mindset to pursue God's call for our lives and our life as a church. Okay? And so let me walk through several of those things that I want us to learn from the story. Number one, we are at war. Be encouraged, right? Uplifting point there. We are at war. The very first line in verse eight is what? There is a war between the king of Aram and Israel. We are at war. Listen, if we are going to be followers of Jesus, we have to understand that opposition and resistance and hostility is to be expected. Persecution is the way of following Jesus. Why? Because we are at war. 
And maybe it doesn't feel that way for you this morning. And so let me just gently remind you of the numerous times we are taught that through the scriptures. Jesus himself in John chapter 15, before his crucifixion, he turns to his disciples and what does he tell them? He says, a servant is not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will what? They will persecute you. Right? You continue on. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And guess what? It turned out that way, as you well know. 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone, not a few, not just some of you, not just those that live in hostile countries, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hebrews 11, 35 through 37 talks about what that persecution can look like, describes it. There are others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers, flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Make no mistake, church, we are at war. Persecution is a reality of following Jesus. Now, the problem is that a lot of times we, we are reminded that we're at war and we lose focus on who is the real enemy, right? Because we, we receive these levels of opposition and this hostility in moments, and all of a sudden we can focus in on the people that are responsible for it, right? We get frustrated to those that cause the pain, that cause the injustice, that cause the corruption, but the scriptures are very clear to not lose focus. Ephesians 6 says what? Your struggle is not against flesh and blood, is it? What is it against? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is a spiritual war, and it is raging all around us. Don't ever lose sight of that. But don't misdirect your focus to thinking that it's against flesh and blood. Right? First Peter 5 says, the, the devil is like a lion seeking someone to devour. That's the reality of our situation. Now, here's, here's the thing. You can maybe say, well, it doesn't feel that way, Jeremiah. I hear you. Good scriptures, but it doesn't feel that way. Can I just politely remind you that according to Open Doors, the organization that tracks worldwide persecution, 245 million brothers and sisters face high levels of persecution every single day. Now, maybe you're not one of the 245 million, but they're your brothers and sisters. 105 churches every month will be burned and vandalized because of the faith. We are at war. Now, here's the reality. We can hear statistics like that. We can go read statistics like that, and it still feels distant. And the reason is, is because the devil employs a lot of different tactics and strategies, doesn't he? He doesn't always have to combat those that follow Jesus with the same approach, does he? It may be physical violence and, and imprisonment and torture in certain places, but in other places, you know what he wants to do? He just wants to get you out of the fight. So what I feel like can happen here in our culture in America is he looks at the church in America and he says, you know what, I got a different approach here. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make them comfortable to the point that they forget there's even a war going on. I'll get them distracted. I'll get them to think about themselves. You know what? I'll even get them to argue with each other about silly things that don't matter. And he neutralizes us. And it's ridiculous because then we forget that we're at war. You understand how ridiculous that is? Think, think about it this way. Okay, let's, let's think for a moment that we're back during World War II. Okay, and all of a sudden you have a father, a son, maybe a brother, a relative who has been, been sent overseas to fight the enemy. 
Can you imagine going through a moment in your day where you forget you're at war? And all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah. <laughs> a family member might lose their life today. Forgot about that. And yet that's how we often walk. Brothers and sisters constantly facing the threat of losing their life. And we're like, oh yeah. Forgot about that. That's not how communities think and act during wartime, is it? When you're at war, you come together. Everyone plays a part, whether you're abroad or you're at home. During, during World War II in the home front here, what happened? You felt the impact of being at war because you had to sacrifice. There were rations. Rations on food, rations on gas, rations on, on clothes that you could purchase. And so every time you ate, every time you filled up your car with gas, every time you purchased a new outfit, you were reminded we're at war. And you sacrificed your own needs for the common good. Right? And it wasn't just sacrifice, you, you actually wanted to contribute. People began to create new ways to contribute to help overcome the opposition, right? Uh, victory gardens were planted. You guys heard about these things? Victory gardens were planted. Up to 20 million by 1945, victory gardens were planted that were responsible for 40% of the vegetables that were consumed in the U.S. during the time of war. 40%. They would have, they would have drives to collect uh, scrap metal and rubber and things that could be sent off to, to help the artillery, the armament of the, of the troops overseas. You constantly reminded that we were at war. And there was an urgency with how you lived your life. So let me ask you, church, what do you see? Do you see that we're at war? Or does it feel like peacetime? Right, do, do you see... Not just the fact that brothers and sisters are facing persecution, but do you see the injustices here in our town, in our community, in our country? Do you see the orphan? Do you see the child that needs somebody to welcome them in? Do you see the teenage girl that's been captured and sold and treated like a commodity? Do you see the poverty? Do you see the greed? Do you see the injustices? Do you see the lostness? People that constantly give their life to other things that won't fulfill. Do you see the war that is around us? Or have you convinced yourself it's peacetime? What do you see? We are at war. And if we're truly going to pursue God's vision that he's placed on our lives or as a church, we have to live with that sort of urgency. Now, how do we navigate wartime? This is critical. Because once we realize that, we need a guide. And so what's the guide in this story? It's the Word of God. Now, in this story, God is speaking to his people through a prophet, specifically Elisha. But every single step, here's the, the Arameans, here's the enemy. They're trying to, to win a victory here and win a victory here. And what is keeping them out of harm's way but the Word of God? Elisha's sending warning, saying, beware. So if we're going to navigate wartime, we have to cling to the Word of God. Psalm 119, 105 says what? Lord, your word is like a lamp unto my feet. His word is what guides our step. His word is what helps us navigate through this season and through this struggle. Now, when we submit ourselves to God's word, guess what we're going to figure out? It doesn't necessarily lead you to comfort, does it? It doesn't necessarily lead you to a life of ease, does it? No, in fact, what we discover is that some of the most meaningful things in life are some of the hardest things in life. What the Word of God does is it keeps you out of the hands of the enemy. That's why we cling to it. And so what we see here, not only is that we're at war, not only do we need to cling to the Word of God, but as soon as we begin to embrace that mentality, here's what you can expect. Here's the third thing you learn from this story. As soon as you begin to submit to the Word of God and navigate through wartime, here's what you can expect. Increased opposition that often becomes personal. 
Right, so the king of Aram is frustrated. Who's responsible for this? Who's the mole? Who's leaking information? Well, it's, it's Elisha, king. All right, well, seek him out. And all of a sudden, this war against Israel became focused on one particular person. And so he doesn't send out just a few people. He sends out a strong force. And they move by night, and they surround the city. And so part of what we have to recognize is that if we truly embrace what it means to follow Jesus, and we understand what it is to live in this context, that opposition is not going to go away. It's going to intensify and often become more personal. And so here's the servant. Right? He wakes up in that morning, and he sees that they're surrounded, and he feels helpless, and he feels desperate, and he goes to Elijah, and he says, what are we going to do? And I wonder how many of you would feel that way this morning. You feel surrounded. You feel desperate. You feel hopeless. And so let me ask you, what do you see? What's surrounding you? Right, are you, you surrounded by a certain battle, a certain trial, a certain hardship that just feels as if there is no escape? Some of you are in this room, you're fighting cancer, you're fighting some sort of physical disease, you're fighting some diagnosis from a hospice care, and you're sitting there going, it feels like the end is near and I've got nowhere to go. What shall I do? How many of you are surrounded by loneliness, isolation, purposelessness, whatever it is? Some of us are surrounded by addictions, things that we constantly battle and can't seem to overcome. What do you see? Are you in that season of helplessness and hopelessness? There are going to be times when we go through this life where the brokenness of this world and the reality of this war comes right here on our own front doorstep. And so what do we do in those moments when we feel surrounded? This is where this passage becomes so encouraging, right? In that desperation, the servant goes to Elisha and says, what do we do? And the word of the Lord says, don't be afraid. One of the greatest promises of the Scripture, fear not, be strong, be courageous. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, I have not given you a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. If we're truly going to pursue God's call for our life, if we're truly going to engage in this fight, we cannot fight scared. We must be fearless in what He is calling us to do. And we must carry that sort of mentality and carry that sort of an emotion, right? That's how we move forward. We cannot be afraid. You fight afraid and you lose. But we fight with power. We fight with confidence. And so Elisha tries to invigorate that in his servant. He says, Lord, open his eyes that he can see there are more with us than are with them. Right now, if you're the servant, wouldn't you want to just run and hide? Right? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't you feel just completely surrounded by these enemies that my only concern, where do I go? Where do I run? Where do I hide? And I fear that that is often the response that we face when life gets difficult. Right? That so much of our response of God's call in our life is we're just trying to withdraw. We, we see all the bad in the world and we're just like, all right, how do I keep myself from it? How do I protect my kids? Right? And we put up shields. We put up barriers. Let me tell you something, you're never going to overcome these fights if you don't actually get in the fight. 
And so Elisha's saying, open his eyes that he can see the power of God on display. And that's when he looks up and he sees these chariots of fire and these horses that are surrounding them. The servant sees the power of God on display. And that's what you and I need to see in order to have that courage. And can I tell you something, church? If you're looking for the power of God, you're not going to find it on Fox News and CNN. You're not going to find it on your news feed. Where you're going to find the power of God is when you actually rise up and get in the fight. And you discover a church that is actually willing to go feed the hungry. You're going to find the power of God when you see a family take in the orphan and the foster care child. You're going to see the power of God when you actually see a community rally together and say, we're not going to stand by and let these girls be victimized. And they don't just stop with rescue, but they actually attack the demand that creates the sickness of the industry. That's when you start to see the power of God is when people fearlessly go and make known the mystery of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's what we can't lose sight of, church. Right here in 2 Kings chapter 6, the, the power of God is manifest in this beautiful vision of, of, of chariots of fire and horses and all this amazing stuff. Here's what it is for you and me on this side of the cross. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. You want to know how the power of God has been put on display? Look no further than Christ who through his pain and through his sacrifice took the sins of the world and nailed them to the cross, dying the death that you and I deserve, defeating the grave so that you and I could have victory. And in that moment, it was a tremendous triumph. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says it like this. When Jesus did that, he disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You want to see the power of God? Look no further than Jesus Christ. What he has done has secured your courage, your freedom, your hope, your promise, and your future for tomorrow. There is one greater with us than he who is in the world. That's what it reminds us of over and over again. So open your eyes and see it. Don't lose sight of what's been taking place for you through Jesus Christ. And so all of a sudden, if we embrace these things, we have the right mindset. We understand the urgency of being caught up in this war. We're, we're submitting to the word of God to navigate our steps. And all of a sudden, we're able to, to have this courage. We're able to see the power of God. We're moving unafraid. And now all of a sudden, we see the tools with which we engage the enemy. Now we see how we respond, and here are the tools that we have outlined for us in this passage. We respond with prayer, faith, and action. Okay, so let's start with, with prayer. Right, I love it. They're surrounded, and what does Elisha say? Well, let's pray. Let's do it. Let's pray. And prayer is the gateway to the power of God. Prayer is the posture of people that understand we are at war. And you want to know if you truly embrace this mindset? You want to know if you truly have that sensitivity to the urgency of being at war? Look at your prayer life. How urgently, how fervently do you find yourself praying? You want to know if a church does? Look how they pray. I'll know that we have really captured it as a people when we have more than six to eight people show up at our weekly prayer meetings. That's how I'll know when we are urgently praying together. Because we know it's costly. And not just that we pray, but how we pray. Look at how Elisha prays. He prays specifically, and he prays for victory. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't say, Lord, this army looks really big. And so whatever your will, if this is my time, this is my time, let me just have peace. Man, he prays for victory. He prays for, for a, a, a triumph. 
How many times do we face things that surround us and we go, well, Lord, you know what? I, just help me be at peace with this situation. Pray for victory over cancer. Pray for things to be undone. Pray for the orphan and pray for the window. Pray for specifics. And what the, the way in which we can determine that we're praying really well for specifics is when we can attach names to it. And we're no longer just praying for causes, we're praying for people because we know an orphan, we know the widow, we know the immigrant, we know those people that are suffering. We're praying for specifics of the things that we're facing. And we're praying for victory. Right? And so this is what Elisha does. He prays, he says, uh, Lord, blind them. Strike them with blindness. And it's miraculous. And because he asked for it, the Lord gives it. Right? So he was bold enough in his prayer to ask for it. Now, once he prays it, what's it going to take? It's not going to just take prayer. It's going to take faith. Right? Now, think about the faith that is demonstrated here in this part of the story. I love this. So he prays for blindness. Now, we don't really know how this blindness impacts the Arameans. We don't. Like, did they panic? Was every one of them going, I can't see! I mean, that's what I'd be doing. I'd be freaking out. Right? So, like, is that what was going on? Then say that's what was going on. Did they just not recognize Elisha? We don't know. But here's what we do know. Elisha stepped up to meet him and talked to him. <laughs> he, he didn't just pray for blindness so he could escape. He wasn't praying for his own personal safety. He had a plan, and his plan was victory over the enemy. And that took stepping up and engaging this enemy face to face. That takes faith. Right? He didn't know. And, and not just faith, he steps up and he says, you know what, uh, the person you're looking for, he's not here. Wrong road, wrong, th- let, me, let me help you. And he starts to lead them to Samaria. Okay, now that may not seem significant to you, but Samaria is about 10 miles away from Dothan. 10 miles. Okay, so I researched this. It takes the average American, according to Google, about two and a half hours to walk 10 miles. So imagine leading an army thousands of years ago through the terrain of one town to the next, probably a little bit longer. This didn't just take faith. It took sustained faith. Man, if it had been me, I'd like to think maybe by mile two is when it would start wavering, but probably before that, right, that I'd start going, are they still blind? Nope, we're good. Okay, right? Like, I would be worried. But for 10 miles, they marched, and they moved forward, and they began to trust this This provision from God is going to sustain. When we engage in this fight and we pursue what God is calling on our lives as individuals, as a church, guess what? We want instant results. We want instant gratification. Guess what it takes? Sustained faith, one step at a time. We have to believe, we have to trust, and we have to lead forward, and we have to pray and move with the mindset of victory and not just personal safety. And that's where we discover the power of our actions, right? That this prayer and this faith is marked with how we act towards these people. So here they go. They move to Samaria, and all of a sudden, Elisha concludes with this prayer. All right, Lord, open their eyes so they can see where they are. And now the tables have turned, right? And this army is now surrounded by the king of Israel. Can you imagine being in that army? You set out at night, and you're like, we got this dude. You surround him. You're feeling powerful. You're feeling like this is... This is a great victory. The king's going to love it. And the next thing you know, you're the one vulnerable. You're at their mercy. And it's here, this critical part of this story, where we get an insight, an answer. How will this unfold? Is this where we see hatred met with hate? 
violence with violence, hostility with hostility. No, what we see is that the first action of those that follow Jesus is grace. Shall we kill him? We can. We can end him right here. Shall we kill him? No. Don't kill him. Grace. These are, these are our enemies. These are the ones who have been plotting and seeking to kill me. Are you sure? No. Grace. When we engage in this fight and we pursue God's call in our life, everyone else that consumes or con- comes against us must see that we are constantly, unequivocally, a people of grace. We do not respond to hate with hate or violence with violence or hostility with hostility. We respond with grace. And that grace is accompanied with love. What does Elisha say? He says, no, don't just not kill them. In fact, feed them. Give them something to drink. Love them. Right? We demonstrate our love to others by the way that we meet their needs, the way that we tangibly show care. Because sometimes when Jesus says, feed the hungry, he literally means feed the hungry. And so we do these things for them. We demonstrate this love because we know that love always perseveres, always protects, always hopes, always trusts. We know love never fails. Love is the mark of the follower of Jesus. That's how we engage in this fight, through grace and through love and with joy. Because they don't just feed them. They throw a feast. Are you kidding me? I love it. A feast is a mark of celebration. And this closing image is of these two opposing forces, these two sets of enemies feasting together. That's the way of the church. Let me show you grace. Let me show you love so that we can have joy together. People are going to know that we follow Jesus by our joy. The moment that we're concerned about persecution, we need to remember the voice of our Savior who says, be blessed when they persecute you. In fact, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward is great. This is the mark of the followers of Jesus. This is how we fight with grace and love and joy. And so let me ask you, church, what do you see? Because the closing line of this story is the result we desire. Transformation. Peace. <laughs> right? They decide to no longer raid the enemy's territory. We see this hatred that they once carried, this cause that the enemy was once pursuing has now been transformed into peace. That's our desire, to see people transformed by the grace, love, and hope of Jesus Christ. That's how we pursue this. That's the goal that we desire for all the things that God puts in front of us as individuals, as a church. And so what do you see? My hope is that as we move forward to what God has called us to, we can all recognize that, yes, there is an urgency with which we need to move because we are at war. We are at war. Right? That we can cling to God's word to help us navigate through these situations and through these circumstances. That we can have the wisdom to know that that opposition is going to intensify and it oftentimes be personal. But we would never focus on the enemy. We'd never focus on the storm. We wouldn't forget that the Savior is with us there on the boat, that we would be strong, we would be courageous, we would fear not. We would open our eyes and see that because Jesus has conquered the grave, we have nothing to fear. Amen? Amen. And with that, then, we engage through prayer, through faith, through grace, through love, through joy. That's the mindset that we need to create. What do you see, church? 
My hope is that if we do this well, we will all see the power of God unleashed in our lives, in this church, in this community, in this world. We will see every tongue, tribe, and nation have their eyes opened that they would come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. To that end, may we pursue for all glory for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And I just pray that you would open our eyes and see the power that you instill within your church. God, that you would once again equip us with a courage and a strength that allows us to go before everything that you have called us to do, Father, with a commitment and with a passion that is fearless. God, that we would be able to see in confidence, once again, the way in which you move. God, when we think about the things that you're calling us to, God, that we would pray specifically and we would see the transformation that we desire, not that we desire, ultimately, God, that that you desire, that we would see a community change, you'd see our lives change, that you would help us see the victories that we want to see declared here in our midst. God, help us embody what you have instilled within your church for thousands of years. Help awaken us to pursue you and to love you with awfulness. God, open our eyes that we can see you. We love you, Father, and pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.